Well, before we get started in prayer, I'd like to, uh, in fact, don't let me forget the prayer part. As I mentioned in the email, give a little bit of a perspective on things. We just need to be reminded, nothing new here. You've heard me say probably everything I'm going to say. I'm just going to put it together perhaps in a different way. But I know in terms of the election, it's kind of disturbing to some of us, distressing to others. So we need to kind of think and refocus and think in terms of, first of all, what is God doing? What is God doing in the world? What is God doing in our country? We start with him. And in terms of our relationship, nothing can change that. Nothing can change what what we have in Christ or in our relationship to the Lord. If anything, things may intensify. In fact, things may even draw us closer to Him. So as far as what we should be doing, I think we should be doing first things first, keeping priorities, keeping our mission intact, doing the things that the Lord wants us to do. So that's kind of the foundation and the starting point. Secondly, and I'm only going to do this for about 10-15 minutes, for those of you that are wondering, and then we'll go into a word of prayer for not only the situation, but for our missionary that we're going to pray for, Phyllis, by the way, and some of the other items. Secondly, a good thing to think about is where is the U.S. in Bible prophecy? Anyone want to give a suggestion Possibly the eagle's wings that carry Israel uh, into the Jordanian desert. Only possibly, and it's not real clear. In fact, that could be more supernatural. But yeah, that's probably the only small little sliver of involvement that countries outside of the Middle East may have. And that is not a very, very clear passage. In general... Who else? Anyone else want to make a suggestion? Yes. Nowhere. Nowhere. I'll say something. Yeah, I was going to say nowhere as well. Jeff, who was the other one that was going to say something? Geneva. Geneva. Oh, okay. Great. Thanks for joining us today. Go ahead. I was just going to say that um, uh, Scripture is very clear that Israel is going to stand alone in the end times. And so... The U.S., along with all the other nations, are going to be against Israel. Okay. Yeah, that's a good insight. And, uh, in fact, that is key. In fact, I think uh, the relation that's one of the things I want to focus on is the relationship of our country to Israel is key. You've heard me say many, many, many times that world history is Jewish. And... The Lord has set things up by covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, such that the rest of world history after Abraham, all of the nations will be evaluated and dealt with by God on the basis of how they treat Israel. So that is a key biblical concept to always be reminded of. And as Geneva has mentioned, the passages that deal with Israel Specifically, at the end of the age, all of the nations basically turn against them. They stand alone, except for God preserving them. And in fact, the passage we're going to look at talks a little bit about what God is going to do. So we'll expand that when we get into the Romans passage today and probably next week as well. In fact, probably more so next week. So the U.S. in prophecy is there's no specific passage. There may be some allusions as it relates to the nations, but nothing specific, nothing outstanding in terms of the U.S. The U.S. has no covenant with God, no promises specifically to us as a nation. God has entered into covenant with Israel, not with the United States. We have not inherited anything from Israel. That's a viewpoint of some, but that is not a biblical viewpoint. In light of that, what are some of the possibilities? What are the possibilities in terms of things like the current election? 
Well, first of all, it's not settled yet, so we shouldn't assume too many things, especially if you support Trump, you shouldn't assume that it's done. But if you support, if any support uh, Biden, you shouldn't assume that he's going to be the next 46th president either. So things have not been settled yet. But let me lay out a couple of possibilities. The future for our country, I think, depends on how we treat Israel in part. Secondarily, if you read scripture, you also see God dealing with nations, particularly in the Old Testament. There's not a whole lot in the New Testament. God dealing with nations in terms of the relationship to him as well. And historically, the nations turn against God. And you might even make a strong case that in large measure, our country has turned against God. And a lot of this you see is very, very evident. And God deals with nations And since we have no covenant and no guarantee, we have been a very, very blessed nation for all of our years, uh, even recently. And I attribute that to our nation has always been favorable towards Israel. And our nation has also been founded on biblical godly principles. And many of the early founders were genuine Bible-believing believers, not everyone and not every leader, but in general, nationally, we were a people that would have been considered a Christian nation, a godly people. That has radically changed, and there's going to be an accounting for those changes. There's going to be an accounting in terms of our relationship to God. I'm not saying we're there, but we're well on the road to being at a place where we will be removed from prominence. And what I mean by that, uh, because there's no prophecy of the United States as a major player in the last days, we will not be a major player. And how that power is diminished, we don't know. It could be from a foreign uh, people that basically take over. The more likely scenario will be internal decay and internal uh, disruption. And we already see a sharp divide. A house divided cannot stand. We're there. There's a sharp divide. There are forces that are moving us in a direction, I think, where we're in a very precarious situation as far as spiritual things and God is concerned. So the possibility might be that uh, God has taken his hand of blessing off and is allowing us to pursue the course that we have chosen nationally as a nation. And if that be the case, then uh, we can expect things related to God to diminish. We can expect uh, even persecution, maybe a slow process, but we can expect it. We ought to anticipate it and we ought to be prepared for it. I think God has, in recent years, given us something of a reprieve from that coming, I guess you could say, judgment, but it's not going to be forever, and there will be, in terms of Bible prophecy, a diminishing of our influence, and along with that will come all of the consequences of a nation whose hand has been removed. So let me just close this with a couple of perspectives here, with a couple of passages. First of all, notice what 1 Peter 4 says, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. That was first century. So there was an anticipation that what God was going to bring to fulfillment, things that he had prophesied in the Old Testament and more recently through earlier writers before First Peter here, that indicated that At any moment, God could bring things to consummation. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And we need to be people in prayer. In fact, all the time, nothing has changed. We need to be people of prayer. Prayer warriors ministry will increase sober in spirit. In other words, uh, 
taking a sound and a biblical view of what's happening around us, not panic, not allowing uh, things to uh, discourage us even, concentrating on what God may be doing. And keep in mind, the church grows the more it suffers. So it says, verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. So we will have plenty of opportunities to love one another and love the unbeliever. The unbeliever needs to be rescued out of what is coming because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, we need to continue our mission within the spiritual gifts that God has provided us with and given us. And it should not change our ministry. It should intensify it if things get um, bad, I guess I could say, or not as blessed as we have had Verse 11 expands verse 10, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were. In other words, if you have a speaking gift, uh, speak the utterances of God, whoever serves. If you have a serving gift, serve, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified. And that's the bottom line. No matter what, no matter the situation, no matter the politics, no matter who's president, God can be glorified, maybe not by the nation in general, because our country in large measure has not glorified God. We've passed laws that are totally anti-God and go in the opposite direction. But as individuals, nothing can hinder us from choosing to glorify God through Jesus Christ. In other words, in our relationship and in our walk, as we commit ourselves day by day to walk in the Spirit through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And notice verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. In other words, this church already was experiencing suffering. Anticipate it, expect it, prepare for it. Which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is not strange. All believers of every age have suffered. People in the U.S. have been kind of the only exception historically. So we can't expect to continually always be without it. And then verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Don't be depressed. Don't be down on things. Don't be retaliatory. Don't, don't do negative things. Rejoice. So that also, this the verse goes on, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So how we respond to whatever, to whether Trump's going to be continue a four-year period or whether Biden begins a new uh, administration in January, we continue to glory God, but however we respond, is going to have an impact at what he calls here the revelation of God's glory. That's the second coming. That's the rapture. That's the kingdom, essentially. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, he's assuming you're walking in the spirit. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a trouble troublesome meddler, but If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in the name, in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it is begin with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those who also suffer according to the will of God and trust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So that's kind of our mission. That's the perspective, I think, whether we have further decline in our country and some of the things that are proposed are going to 
cause us to decline and diminish as a power. In fact, it's even stated overtly in terms of some of the uh, policies. Regardless, the bottom line is we need a godly and a biblical perspective. And I think this passage, amongst all of the others related, gives us that, that perspective. And it's incumbent upon us to be prepared for whatever and uh, to, to maintain our priorities, maintain a perspective that is biblical. So that's my perspective. Anyone care to add a couple of things there? And then we'll go into Ray, some prayer. Go ahead. Uh, if I can just say, I was doing, I was reading uh, a, another book uh, uh, last night by a, a Christian uh, philosopher. I was reading it. And he was talking about that when we place anything, he was talking about idols and anything that we place above God to rescue us. We hold as an idol in our life. Yep. So if we are saying, oh, all is lost because this party or that party or this man or that that man or whatever, anything we hold and we place our faith, our reliance on anything but the Lord God most sovereign high, anything else is an idol. Yes. Yes, exactly. So that's... Uh my perspective. Anyone else before we go to prayer? Hey, it's yeah. Denise. Go ahead, Denise. I, I may be cutting to the chase, and, and I, I don't mean to disregard what you said because all of it is true. But I think one thing we need to keep in mind, this is not our home. Yes. This is our testing place. Exactly. And it's we have to be faithful to the Lord in season and out of season and ready to give a testimony to the uh, joy and the hope that's in us. That's our place in the world. The rest of it is just the way that the Lord chooses to test each individual. Exactly. Keep in mind, the Bible says that uh, the world actually is not, God has permitted Satan to be the God of this world. So it's not surprising. And if you study. He stole it. He stole it. Yeah, he usurped what God gave to Adam and Eve. So we're living in uh, Satan's world, basically. But that does not have any impact apart from what God permits in uh, the life of the believer. And we're under his shadow, under his hand, under his wings. And he is our hope, as Denise put it. Anything else? And Mary Lee, anything else is idolatry. Uh, this is Norman. I guess Rome was there to help bring in the fullness of times for Jesus to come. And now America is doing what Rome did. They have a, pl- a safe place somewhat for the diaspora. And they have a gar- we have a garrison now in Israel to protect it. I guess it used to be the term in colonialism of a protectorate. Okay. Geneva, and then we'll go. Geneva? Um, I was just going to say that um, uh, I believe that if uh, uh, Biden gets in, America is going to turn against Israel. And that is the, the preliminary precursor, I guess you could call it that, for the, the tribulation period to begin because we will... Um, basically be aligned with all the other nations and the antichrist the setting for the antichrist is set up yeah it's in the platform it's in their platform yeah yeah they yeah, are. and we're, we're being censored as christians too right now i experienced that um on the internet uh on facebook i was censored and yeah. a friend of mine was uh, has been many times, um, even for sharing a beautiful photo and saying, look at God's beauty. And she was censored for that. And um, yeah, I, I, I echo that too. I think if Biden does win, I, I echo those sentiments about Israel. And also I think the censorship is, is even going to get worse. Um, and if Trump ends up uh, you know, taking another four years, I think that the the division between 
good and evil, you know, it's going to be so apparent even more so. We're going to be persecuted that much more. And people are, are going to hate Christians so much. If Trump does get the four years again, I, I just think it's going to really, we're going to feel it more. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm ready either way. I know God's sovereign and his plan is unfolding the way it's supposed to. Um, I just think, yeah, either way, we're, we're going to experience um suffering but you know as ray says growth as well in the church so great it's a good note to end god is sovereign we need to keep trusting him keep first things first keep our walk and actually we're going to have more opportunities to share the gospel with a lost and unbelieving world as things degenerate okay that's just a little perspective just a good reminder nothing new really right This is what we talk about all the time. We just haven't put it together in a little historical context as we just did here. Appreciate some of the things the rest of you shared as well. Ray. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to have to tune out, but I I just wanted to make one last comment. You've already studied Romans from 1 to 11, so I think uh, all of the believers can get encouragement from chapter 8. Yep. Um, nothing, absolutely nothing, past, present, future, right. things cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Exactly. So that's our assurance in Christ Jesus. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Good. Well, let's go ahead and pray. Phyllis is the one that we're praying for. Well, let's do it and pray for the nation and pray for us being lights in a dark world. Heavenly Father, I just want to praise you for um, your care of Phyllis in Hong Kong. We thank you that you are omnidirectional, those seven directions or whatever it was of chess, dimensions of chess that Norman uh, talked about. Father, you can operate on so many more dimensions at once, and we're so grateful that that's who you are and that um, you know, we don't have to fear who's ever manipulating things in whatever dimension because you are over all of them. We thank you, Lord, that your word tells us you put kings in power and you depose them. Um, another reason why we have nothing to fear from whoever happens to be leader at the time. Father, there is a spirit of fear and divisiveness that is sweeping through our country. Many of Lizzie's friends have expressed fear um, for their safety, um, which I don't quite understand. But, Lord, I pray that you would bind that spirit of fear and the one of divisiveness as well. And any minions that are in their hierarchy, Father God, bind them and cast them into the pit of hell that they may not be free to work in our nation. Unless it is a fear of you, Lord, that that is the only fear that we want existing here. I thank you that you take care of Phyllis, that her health is improving. I pray that you would give them wisdom as far as um, if they need to get out of Hong Kong, uh, as far as timing and protection and all of that. Um, The same uh, protection we pray over Photios and Cheryl and their health challenges. Um, Father, you are awesome. You are amazing. You are constant and consistent, and there is no reason for us to be afraid. Um, Father, we thank you that Jesus died to pay the penalty of our for our sins, um, that even the coming judgment is not something that we need to fear because you have already gone there before us and taken care of it for us. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, we had a little bit of a longer prayer, but that's appropriate and called on and good comments. I think we have, I think you all have an excellent perspective and not that I doubted that you would. And as I said, just some of the things that I shared were nothing new, just some reminders of things that we've talked about as we go through the book of Romans and other passages. So let's take a look at the book of Romans because it in some way is actually related to what we were discussing. And we're talking about the olive tree that is in Romans chapter 11. And we looked at verses 17 and 18 last time. I'll give you a review, quick one. 
Christians living in the city of Rome, they were living under a totalitarian system. So the things that they were experiencing, some of them were suffering. There was persecution. There was actually lots of anti-Semitism that was building, not only in the city of Rome, but in the Roman Empire. That anti-Semitism would culminate in the destruction of the nation of Israel in 70 AD. And keep in mind, Paul is writing 56, 57, probably the winter there, between 56 and 57, and writing to believers in the city of Rome. And in that, he's giving them a perspective on the nation of Israel, where he's vindicating God's righteousness in the way that God is dealing with them. He has sovereignly dealt with them in the past in choosing them, and he's free to set them aside as well, since he is sovereign over them. He's free to choose others as well outside of Israel. So Israel is set aside, chapters 9, 30, verse 30 through the end of chapter 10, and God has rejected them, and that kind of was dramatically illustrated in 70 AD, where For 2,000 years now, Israel has been under discipline. And the point of chapter 11 is that there's a future restoration, and we're on the verge of the passage that makes that explicit. And uh, God is not through with Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. There's going to be a future salvation. So we've been looking at this concept of Israel. Only a remnant, only a remnant of true believers, only a few in comparison in the New Testament accepted the Messiah as a nation. They rejected the Messiah, and as a result, they are hardened. The rest of Israel is hardened, chapter 11, 7 through 10, which raises the question that Paul is answering in the verses that we're looking at, is God finished with Israel? And he states emphatically, no. Absolutely not. God is not finished with Israel. There's always been a a remnant, first 10 verses of chapter 11. So that remnant actually represents the larger Israel, and God is still committed to Israel, and the remnant receives the blessings of the Messiah. And there's going to be a restoration that is yet future of the entire nation, And this remnant, we saw from verse 16 last time, sets apart the broader nation that God has given promises to. And God even uses the failure of Israel, and he has purposes for it that involve primarily the Gentile. We looked at that passage, completed it last time, and particularly focused on verse 16 and 17. 16 transitions into the parable of the olive tree, and that's where we'll pick up today, verses 17 through 24. And essentially, most people miss it, but it's a warning to Gentiles. So in the middle of talking about Israel and how God has actually set Israel aside, Paul is now saying, you Gentiles, if God has set Israel aside, what makes you think that if you don't walk with him or not faithful to him, he will not set you aside? Now, we need to discuss what that means, and I think he's looking at Gentiles more generically, I guess you could say, or more as a unit And he gives a warning, a first warning in the first two verses there, 17 and 18. That was our focus. We spent the whole time last time looking at those two verses where he introduces this concept of an olive tree with roots. And probably the best way of looking at the roots is they represent Abraham. That's the roots of the olive tree that I think is a picture of Israel in the Old Testament in Jeremiah and other passages. At least Abraham, some of the commentators would include Isaac and Jacob, which you can because the Abrahamic covenant was reiterated to them. But very definitely, Abraham is set apart by covenant promises. God has made promises and legalized them in a legal document. We call that a contract 
or the Bible describes it as a covenant. They're one and the same. God has entered into a legally binding contract with with the descendants of Abraham, Abraham and his descendants. And uh, in that, verse 16 tells us that uh, the branches are set apart. Doesn't mean they're saved, every one of them. In fact, some of them are hardened and set apart. But in terms of the national entity, there's a future that God will not totally abandon them. There's a remnant within that are still attached. So that was the focus of last week. But if some of the branches were broken off, the sum is Israel. Go ahead, Jim. Well, just one couple little minor things. Actually, the parable starts at the end of verse 16. We could say that. I see it was more transitional, but yeah. That's That's where the root is mentioned correct and i know i noticed that you mentioned it when you mentioned it you mentioned it based on roots plural but it, it isn't it's roots singular did That's i say all. plural i i meant singular okay good clarification okay but if some of the branches this the sum refers to part of the branches in other words not every single branch that's attached to the root Now, he's talking about the branches being Israel. If they were broken off, he's already talked about that. And you, remember he has uh, singled out. He spoke in verse 13, I'm speaking to you Gentiles now. So he's speaking to you. And remember, it's singular. If you being being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, By virtue of trusting in Israel's Messiah, we have been grafted in to this olive tree, the image he's going to use, he's going to carry this illustration through. And the main thrust here is verse 18. This is the main independent clause. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. And I think the branches in general, including the ones that have been broken off. So, We need to take another look at that. We looked at it, but that's the focus. And then there's a second part of verse 18, actually of 17 through 18. But if you are arrogant, the New American Standard inserts, remember, it's not in the original language. Nate pointed this out in an email, and he's absolutely correct. In fact, the New American Standard kind of expands the the Greek text here, and makes actually adds an imperative in there, which is not necessarily a bad translation, but you need to know that there's basically one exhortation, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But we should remember that it is not you who supports the root. And by the way, I appreciate comments. I want to be accurate. So appreciate comments like what Nate had. In fact, uh, we're blessed in our group We have at least three people that have a good familiarity of Greek, and that gives us a resource to to draw draw from. Jim McGillivray and Jeff and Nate and some of the others of you that have a little bit of Greek as well. So do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, it is not, literally, it is not you who supports the root, but, but the root, you. That's kind of the literal, kind of chop that up a little bit. Let me say it again. It is not you who supports the root, but the root you would be literally. Got it? So last time I I made the point that remember is imperative only in the English. I should have clarified that. But the thrust, do not be arrogant, is the main part of that. So just a few things to notice. Reminders here. This is a parable. So you make a mistake if you try to read too much into any parable. It's like a parable. It's an illustration. And in fact, Paul is talking about something that's contrary to the normal natural practice with olive trees in the Mediterranean at that time. And with all that he says here, I think underlying this is that Gentiles are grafted in by grace. And this is totally contrary to nature, contrary to Justice, you might even say. We all deserve condemnation, but by grace we are grafted in. And uh, the imperatives or the main clauses, 
not only the one in verse 18, but there's going to be another one later on. So these are kind of the main thrust of the passage, so keep that in mind. And when he talks about some of the branches, he's talking about the hardened Israel that he's already discussed earlier. So we talked about what olive trees look like last time. These are the ones that we observed in Gethsemane. And I took this photograph the last trip that we were there. You can see they're very old, or they can be very old. Some of the guides, I don't remember if if our guide mentioned it, but some of them they 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 think date back even to the first century. And this one obviously is an ancient one in the photograph. Similarly, there's others in that garden of Gethsemane. So you being a wild olive, were grafted in among them. Grace. You, we stressed last time, singular, looking at the Gentiles as one or Gentiles as a whole. And he's not even saying that every single Gentile is grafted in. That's going too far in the illustration here. Gentiles, I think, behind his thinking, are Gentiles that have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ they are the only ones that are grafted in, not every single Gentile, because the majority of Gentiles are actually unbelievers. And we have become partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. We are blessed with uh, the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, and I think that blessing primarily focuses in on the coming of Messiah, that's the richness. The coming of Messiah is the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant in which the whole world is blessed. And you can... So, uh, Ray, so, since we kind of, uh, you know, get to things over a long period of time, uh, you just want to uh, point out that uh, interpreting the you there the way you did, and, I, and I, I'm fine with that. Um, then later, though, uh, when though, when he says uh, he's talking about the severity of God, he's talking about then he's talking about branches that can get cut off that are Gentiles. So that means uh, that uh, you've got believers that are getting cut off at that point later on, right? No. So eventually, no. I'll, I'll try when we get there I'll try to explain how I sort that out okay uh, I think uh, this is why I'm highlighting the singular you there he's looking at Gentiles like he's looking at Israel primarily throughout 9 through 11 when he's talking yep. about Israel he distinguishes even though he's not going to make a clear distinction with Gentiles yes but you did say that the you here you thought he was Talking about Gentiles were, who were believers specifically. No. Well, that's, that's uh, why I'm bringing that up now. He, well, I you think what he had, those that are partakers of the rich root have to be believers. But the Gentiles in general that he's talking about being cut off, I think he's viewing Gentiles as God's pre predominant instrument in working in, uh, in the church age. Well, then wouldn't you have to also, then wouldn't you have to interpret the verse 17 as saying that he's looking at all Gentiles being grafted in, which I don't think is right. I don't think so. No, no, I think so he's. I, I don't understand how you're going to sort that out later, but okay. uh, that, that's a problem for me. Okay. Okay. Well, the you is generic and within the you is a believing, you might I don't know, I'll hesitate to use the word remnant, but a believing portion that has become partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree. And in terms of Gentiles, they have access in general, overall. Some actually partake and some actually enjoy the richness of the olive tree, but God is going to treat them as a unit and as a unit that the Gentiles are going to eventually be set aside. Now, he's not clear in that passage you're referring to, but I think if you bring together the eschatological passages in terms of Gentiles and nations during the tribulation, after the rapture, actually, 
after the rapture, when the remnant is taken out, the uh, Gentiles will no longer be the the predominant instrument that God is using in the world. He will revert back to Israel. Now, we're reading a lot of eschatology into these passages, so we need to be very careful here not to read too much into the the illustration. Yeah, let's see if we can sort it out as we go. So, partakers, we talked about spiritual sharers, and this is the reason I kind of distinguish the believer. The unbeliever does not share in that spiritual fatness, if you will. And obviously the command, do not be arrogant. So we have a strong warning. We concluded by mentioning that we have a compound Greek word here, kata. Notice the kata at the beginning there. When you have a preposition that adds to an idea here, and you have a verbal idea of boasting in most places, do not boast or boasting or talking about boasting, the last part there, kalkoamai, that occurs very frequently in the New Testament, and it's generally related to boasting. And those of you that know a little Greek and remember, when you add a preposition, sometimes it intensifies it. And this is probably an example of where the idea of boasting is not only intensified, but it even, it's, it's a rare word in the New Testament, but uh, the lexicon suggests even the idea of triumphing over. So the command is, don't think that you are so high-minded that you, have, you can dominate Jewish people. So it's a very strong word here in the negative, the command against any idea of superiority, And he's going to give the reasons why in the following part. But I wanted to emphasize that part there. And then we talked about this. I've already kind of expanded that part and explained what it is. But the the root supports you. In other words, everything is by grace. So there's no reason to have any ideas or thoughts of any superiority. God didn't choose Gentiles because they are any better. Or there's no no inherent superiority. He is choosing Gentiles totally on the basis of grace. And uh, now in the next passage, I said last time, and we're going to see throughout, God is faithful. We've been seeing throughout. That's why I called it the vindication of God's righteousness, is God will remain faithful to the nation of Israel faithful to all of the promises, that underlies everything that we're talking about in terms of the olive tree. In fact, everything we've been talking about in terms of chapters 9 through 11. And we just emphasize the grace aspect, so the perfections of God, God's faithfulness, God's grace is one of the focuses here. And I think that's stressed at the end of verse 18, It's the root that supports us. There's nothing inherent in Gentiles. In fact, there's nothing inherent in anyone. God is freely choosing some and passing over others. So grace to Gentiles is the focus here. So there's no place for any replacement theology. And verse 19 gets us into the second warning concerning conceit. And let's continue looking at this next smaller portion of the parable. So again, I'm highlighting the you just to keep reminding us. You will say then, in other words, somebody, some Gentile may come up with an argument. Yeah, but uh, we are special. We do have reason to gloat. We do have permission, you might say. You might say, well, along the lines, branches were broken off. They've been set aside. They've been rejected. So he's kind of imagining a Gentile that might bring an argument here. So he's going to kind of answer that thought. It's almost as if Paul anticipated a replacement theology idea, even as early as he writes. And some scholars think that maybe there were some elements already present, but we have certainly seen it in church history, where there has been an arrogant attitude towards 
Jewish people in general. And the idea was the branches were broken off. They're Christ killers. They are rejectors of God. They're rejectors of God's word. And they've been broken off so that I may be grafted in. Doesn't that put me in a special position? Well, yes, it does. In fact, Paul agrees with this last phrase. Quite right. They have been broken off. That's chapters 9 and 10 in the book of Romans. You're right. But that's only a half-truth. He goes on, they were broken off for their unbelief, not because of any inherent goodness, not because of any inherent blessedness of you Gentiles. It is because, and this is kind of a summary of uh, chapters 9 and 10, they were broken off for their unbelief. In other words, faith is the issue. And you stand, and again, singular, stand by your singular your, again, faith, and then we have the second exhortation. So the issue, first of all, is this issue of, of faith. And faith is related to grace. It's not because faith is meritorious in any way, or it's not because we deserve anything. It's always by grace. And the issue and evaluation is whether or not we believe what God has said and what God has done. Israel is set aside because they disbelieved. That's the whole point. The unbelief and the Gentile, those that have responded, are there simply on the basis of faith, on the basis of trust, not because of any merit in in them. And as a result, we have the uh, beginning of a new sentence in verse 20, do not be conceited, but fear. So I use a little different image here to convey this second idea. I don't know which one you like better. Arrogance, that was in the passage in verse 18, to triumph over, but now conceit is to have this high-minded, if you look at the Greek word there, hupselas, the idea of that is to think highly of of self, to elevate self. This is the attitude that some Gentiles could have, if not already were showing signs of even in the first century. And certainly this has been prevalent. Uh, the, The whole concept of pride, arrogance is just an aspect of it. Conceit is another aspect of the sin of pride. And before pride comes a fall, and Paul's going to announce that. So any attitude of any idea of being elevated above Jewish people, Paul is saying, be careful with that, because that puts you in a place, actually puts you in a place of judge, and you will be judged on the basis of your own judgment. Then uh, the last part of the verse there, but fear. Now, oftentimes, I didn't give you the Greek word, but it's phobos, That word in many contexts has the idea of reverence, reverence toward God. In this context, I think it inclines more to the idea of fearing consequences, fearing a coming danger, because he's going to outline that danger in the following passages. I would say it would include a reverence for God, but it also includes the whole idea is there's a danger here. This To have an arrogant attitude, to have a conceitful attitude, brings about godly consequences. And there is a fear. There, there, there's something bad is going to take place. And he's going to begin expanding that in verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, and in this context, and he did. In other words, we assume the premise, and he's already stated that uh, they have been removed. They've been uh, cut off. If God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So this is a very severe, what's the word here, possibility And in fact, it's stated here, 
more as a possibility, but as we continue to read, and if you read other eschatological passages together with this passage, you can come to the conclusion that actually this is going to be a reality. He will, in fact, at a future time, not spare, and again, it's the you, he's not going to spare the Gentile contingent. Somebody had a comment? Yeah, so Ray, if I understand it then, he's talking about the fact that the the Jews, the inheritant inheritors of the promise, were set aside because they did not believe God. They did not believe him and follow him. And he's saying to you now, us Gentiles that have heard it, uh, don't think that you're just walking in fatness and easy because you also have to respond properly to God. Is that the, the gist of his yes, argument? Yes. Now, don't read the idea of individual salvation into this. He's talking about dispensations here. He's talking about generic. In other words, he's, he's speaking in broad strokes. This is an illustration He's not talking about, okay, you are in a position to possibly lose your salvation. In fact, a hermeneutical principle is you don't base any doctrine on illustrations. And what we have here is an illustration. And this is why I'm stressing this unit idea where he's he's speaking very broadly in terms of a large group that includes two groups. And I think Romans 8, as has already been pointed out, is very clear that nothing can separate the true believer from the love of God. But when it comes to God dealing with Israel, there's going to be a future dealing with them as a nation. And in terms of God dealing with the primary instrument of Gentiles, there's going to be a change in the future with that as well. Gentiles, in fact, are going to be set aside. That's not stated explicitly here. I think when God takes out the believing remnant at the rapture, God at that point is going to shift and begin to bring together the spiritual aspects of bringing Israel into that saving relationship as a nation that verse 25 and 26 are going to be more specific. The Gentiles will no longer be the primary instrument. In fact, the apostate church will in fact go into the great tribulation and will be judged, and I think John describes that in Revelation chapter 17, the apostate church that God will in fact not spare. Now, it's not explicit here, and I'm reading some theological ideas into the text, but I think it's consistent and will help us understand he's not talking about losing one's salvation. That would be taking this passage too far. Any, does that clarify, Mary Lee? Yeah, I think so. It's, uh, even though it's a singular you, these are being addressed. Yeah, I didn't see it as being a loss of salvation, but at the same token, we cannot be, uh, you you cannot take God lightly. Exactly. He's going to expand on that in this uh, third warning, beginning in verse 22. We don't have time to get through the whole thing, but we can get started on it, and then we'll just pick up there. I, I see a third warning. So the first warning and the focus of 17 and 18 is a warning against arrogance, and I see a second warning. The focus of 19 through 21 is conceit. Now, both of them are related, slightly different meanings there, but now we have another warning, a third one, that it's going to expand that cutting off idea, uh, the not sparing idea. So there's another warning there, but there's also, he's going to transition in verses 22 through 24 to what he's going to say in verse 25 and 26. In fact, the the rest of the uh, chapter 11 passage. There's also a potential, not only of a removal of this one group, this Gentile group, 
but the potential of a regrafting of the Israel unit or group. So verse 22 is the warning to the Gentiles, and let's look at it. Behold, in other words, take notice. Notice what we have here. Behold, then the kindness and the severity of God. Think in big strokes. The kindness and severity of God. The kindness, he's going to expand here in terms of Gentiles broadly. Gentiles have access directly to God. They don't have to go through the nation of Israel. The dividing wall has broken, been broken. But there's also severity that Israel has experienced, and he's talking about that severity being experienced by Gentiles at the end of this verse as well. So let me kind of give you an introduction to this kindness and severity here. The kindness, it's used three times, by the way, in this passage, in uh, verse verse 22. The Greek word... Christotes has the idea of, and you can see that there's a relationship to grace, charis. See that beginning there? So I include the idea of unmerited goodness of God, the unmerited goodness. It's undeserved. God, that's kind of the main theme here. We don't deserve anything. We're dogs. We're depraved. We're lost. There's none that seeks after God, yet God has given all this privilege to all peoples, all nations, not just uh, the nation of Israel. So it's unmerited and it's goodness. And we saw the goodness of God as a perfection in 2.4. When we come back, we'll look that one up when we come back next week. The severity, apotomia. Uh, This is another strong word. It has the idea to sharply cut off. Now, it's not used very often. There's a verb form that has more of this cutting off idea, but it's, it's a severe term, and that's the meaning of it as well. It's a strong word. It's a definite word in terms of what God will do. It's, it's one of the aspects of judgment. And when God judges, there's nothing that stands in the way of it. And God is very definite in it. And God can sort out in his judgment those that have received the mercy from those that are going to receive the wrath. And uh, it's the idea of severely cutting something off like like a tree. So we have the perfections of God. Faithfulness underlies this, so his promises, grace to the believing Gentiles, kindness to the believing Gentiles, severity to the hardened Jews. And I think that's what we have in view in this passage. Kindness to believing Gentiles, severity to hardened Jews. Go ahead, Norman or Jeff. This is Jeff. Hey, uh, I was noticing uh, that word that's translated severity, apotomea, there are two other related words that use the root tome. Uh, peritome uh, is the Greek word for circumcision. Oh, wow. And, it, and implies a cutting. And another word that is used elsewhere, katatome. Uh, so there's variations on that, and they all imply sort of a, a cutting and a removal. Yes. Yeah. Very good insight. Yeah. I. I didn't look up those related words. I'll have to do it for next time. Very good. There's the Greek students that are helpful for us here. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell. Remember, he's already talked about them. Who are they? It's not all of Israel. To those who fell, he's distinguishing now. These are the hardened. That's why I noted it on that slide. Severity. But to you, singular, God's kindness, and again, even though he's looking at Gentiles broadly, I think specifically the kindness is to, in terms of salvation, is to those that have believed, that spills over, it blesses all of the world, but we've received a kindness. And then we have a conditional clause. In other words, it's not necessarily a a permanent thing, you might say. 
If you again, and he speaking broadly, singular again, continue in his kindness, Gentiles in general. When Gentiles become apostate, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now, this is a different Greek word, and I'll get into it next time. But he is actually indirectly predicting that there will be a cutting off of God's kindness towards the Gentiles. And eschatologically, the best place to think of that is when uh, he takes out the remnant and then the uh, remaining apostate church is cut off and they will even be judged, according to Revelation 17. And then God will do what he says in the following verses, the potential part, that potential part is God is going to regraft the Jews. That's verses 23 through 24. And that's probably the best place to stop for for today. Any comments before we uh, close in prayer here? I was talking about that in a class I was teaching, and it occurred to me, you very rarely hear any pastor talk about God's severity. Well, you heard it today. I know, and I'm grateful. <laughs> Good. Bill, did you have a comment? Actually, I did. Oh, so, Mary Lee. Uh, okay. So we share here in this household. <laughs> from from that, the, the severity and, and that you, if you persist in unbelief, you will be cut off. Does that then mean that there will not be Gentiles that will return, that will come to <clears throat> not return, there will not be Gentiles who come to Christ through the tribulation. This is going to be focused on Israel entirely? No, no. Revelation 7 makes it clear we have 144 Jewish people that are going to proclaim the gospel. And in verse 9, we have the results of that proclamation of the gospel is there'll be people from every tribe and every nation. The greatest, the greatest revival that the world has ever seen will take place in that great tribulation. Now, many will be martyred. It's not going to be an easy time. But there's going to be a massive turning of, of people from every nation, not just the nation of Israel, but, but Gentiles as well. That's okay. why we have to take the you there in kind of a generic sense. And within that, just like the nation of Israel in the first century, as a unit, as a group rejected the Messiah, there were Jewish believers within the remnant. And just as Gentiles will in fact abandon and become apostate, there's lots of passages that speak of a coming apostasy, the remnant will be, there's also the rapture passage that tells us will be taken out And then we have all the Revelation passages that kind of give us the details of how that'll be worked out. Somebody else? Yeah, Ray. Ray, uh, There's another passage that's one of my favorites. It's at the end of Zechariah, Zechariah 14. Mm -hmm. It actually declares that Gentiles from all nations will not just get saved, but they will survive the tribulation and enter the millennium. Yes. uh, Because they then every year have to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Yes. And Matthew, Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus himself in the Olivet Discourse talks about a separating of the sheep and the goats and the, the sheep enter into the kingdom. So there will be believing Gentiles that enter into the kingdom. The focus there is the nations and it's interpreted even by Jesus partially. And the kings of those nations will be bringing all their wealth to yes. Israel and we may have a, a, a position in that, helping them to with the collection. Yep. I believe the church will participate, the, the true church will participate in the millennial kingdom. Also, we will be there in resurrection bodies. An amazing thought. Okay, good. Good comments there. Who wants to close for us? Can I just say one thing? Sure. This, it ends with continuing in, in his grace. Otherwise, Baba. Yeah, the church. To continue in that grace. Right. Urgent as a believer. Thank you. Well, 
distinguish individuals. Nothing can separate the individual from Christ and eternity. That's settled once and for all. Now, there's the judgment seat of Christ, where how we live has an impact, and you can suffer loss, but not eternal life. But there is going to be a removal of what I like to describe as the instrument, the primary instrument that God is using in the world, and a reverting back and a regrafting of the nation of Israel. Okay, somebody close for us who wants to do that. Anyone, don't be shy. Dear Jesus, we, we love you. We thank you for Pastor Ray and for this message. I finally was able to get in on Zoom. And we just ask you, Heavenly Father, that everyone who's here today, that the concepts that we learn will be uh, mulled over and made part of our uh, soul and spiritual life, Heavenly Father. And that will, uh, and we pray for the beginning of the thing when we talked about uh, America and uh, we love our country, and many of us made grave sacrifices for our country. And we just ask you, Heavenly Father, to uh, remember all the things that America has done with you in the past, and and may it be that the best is yet to come in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good week, you all. We love you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for that. Keep praying. Keep praying, y'all. See you later. Bye. Bye. I bless you all. Love you all. Love you guys, too.